Welcome to another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brand. There's a guy I've been wanting to get on the podcast for quite a while, Malcolm Jenkins, safety for the Philadelphia Eagles. A guy that really talks the talk and walks the walk. He was involved with social activism during the whole Kaepernick issues earlier in the season last year, but it has continued and he has done it throughout, going on ride-alongs with cops, meeting on Capitol Hill, not once, but twice with leaders, continuing dialogue there, talking about how it's so important for him to do things beyond football and what it's like to have been with the Saints and the Eagles under Chip Kelly, now Doug Peterson, and advice that he would give to draftees as they face their life starting out in the NFL this week. Really interesting podcast ahead with Malcolm Jenkins of the Philadelphia Eagles. Enjoy it. Contracts, salary caps. Why do our favorite teams make some of the moves they do? It's usually the money. It's time for the business of sports with Andrew Brandt. I'm really excited to have a, a local where I live in Philadelphia with me, someone I've admired on the field and off for quite a while. Welcome to the program to Malcolm Jenkins of the Philadelphia Eagles. Thanks, Malcolm, for being with me. Uh, I appreciate you having me. As I said, I've been a fan uh, because, in, you know, the way I am, I just look at people and I say, is there depth? Is there more to it than what we see? And I always admire athletes that are more than sort of cliches and uh, really show themselves to be interested and interesting. And I've always found that about you uh, when you're coming out of Ohio State and and since you've been in Philadelphia, it just seems like you take on more of an interest in things beyond sports. And I know some people don't have the, the interest in that and maybe not the aptitude, but I've admired that in you from the beginning. Oh, I appreciate that. What sort of drove that? I mean, where did, where did that come from? Something with uh, your upbringing, something with parents, seeing it around you? How have you had that sort of intellectual curiosity over the years? Well, I mean, it's, there's, there's, I mean, the, the intellectual part of it, I really enjoy learning new things. And I've kind of always been that way, uh, whether it be different sports, different skills. I just enjoy the learning process. Um, and so that's always kind of, when it comes to off the field, it's always directed me into new um, arenas, new genres of work. Um, but a lot of what I do in the community and, and how I use my skills and the platform and that curiosity to help others has been something that is, uh, I think, fostered by my parents. You know, I've watched my dad um, really be a father figure in our neighborhood and he was signing other kids up for a problem with the football. He would take us all to practice and from practice um, to the point where they, even the coaches would, would uh, call his his, um, his uh, SUV the uh, Arbor bus. And our neighborhood was called Arbor. And uh, he said, Arbor bus is coming. And really, that just meant my dad's truck was pulling up. And you get about six or seven kids jumping in. And so I, I grew up with that kind of um, giving spirit. And it's been fun to really um, to give in a, in a way that is unique to me and, and through all of the interest that I find and then kind of come, come into, I try to, to use um, that curiosity and skills to really um, give back. Did it come from more than your parents and your dad? I mean, were there leaders in your community? Were there instructors? Were there professors? Uh, people in social activism that kind of led you to this, that 
that really were kind of role models for you growing up or even more recently? So not from a, not from an activist standpoint, but right. if people ask me all the time, Hey, like, Hey, what's, uh, who's, who's your biggest influence or who'd you look up to growing up? And I always tell them um, that I never really have one answer. Like I've been able to meet, um, especially men, but women as well, but men in my life over at, at every stage of my development that is, left the mark on me. So my dad obviously raised me and watching him father three boys and still play father father figure in the community, that was my original kind of um example. Then I got to high school and I had a, a coach, um, Larry Lester, who really poured into me from a freshman all the way to my senior year, showed me how to do work and how sometimes that the, the doing hard work is that road less traveled and you have to be comfortable and okay with um, being the only one willing to work for what you want to do. Then I went to Ohio State and was under Jim Trestle who taught me the everything about off the field, you know, where an environment in college football where everybody wants to talk to you about the NFL, he was more interested in talking to us about being good citizens, having integrity, um, giving back to the community, um, being a leader, uh, and, and developing those things, and he wouldn't let me focus only on football. And so then, then you know, as my life gets on, I can point to all of these different stages of my life where I was developing something, and I can point to people who have kind of placed their, their handprint on, on my life. And so all of that, now when I look at 2017, when people wonder why I'm – um, following the paths that I am, it's because these were these were the examples that I was given, and I know how all of those examples have shaped my life, and I also know that not everybody has those opportunities to be influenced, and so I'm trying to give the same experiences, the same uh, wisdom um, that was given to me. Yeah, I really like what you said there about uh, the sum of parts. So many people have influenced your life, and something about being comfortable in the uncomfortable. I think people that grow are the ones that find comfort in the discomfort and do things hard because the next time they do them, they'll be less hard. And I, I, uh, I see that in you, Mel. Yep. The, uh, in terms of your platform that you have, it just seems to me that you've taken it to a level that hasn't been done a lot. I mean, I know we talk way back about Jim Brown and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Muhammad Ali, but just seems like it hasn't happened a lot since two trips, as I understand, to Capitol Hill over the past few months, one in the fall and one last couple of weeks. Tell us about those trips. I'll just give you kind of a blank canvas. And what was your goals and where are you uh, in sort of what's developed out of these meetings? Yeah, so our, our first initial trip, you know, we really didn't have too many goals in hand. We didn't think it was going to be one of those trips where we would leave and felt like we accomplished something. Mm-hmm. Um, but we knew it was kind of that beginning. So we wanted to meet with a couple of people, get some commitments to meet with us again during the off season at a later date. Um, we spoke to two Democrats, um, including uh, Keith Ellison. We talked to two Republicans, um, including Paul Ryan's team. Um, and then we spoke to the Congressional Black Caucus so we had five meetings. We were there for one day, um, and, and it went well. We we got a, a general overview of um, what some of the feelings were on Capitol Hill about criminal justice reform and 
some of the bills that were up for grabs and um, just kind of the lay of the land. And so when we went back, it was really all about the work at that point. So we had three full days of meetings. Uh, we met with many Democrats, Republicans. Um, we gave testimony at the House of Judiciary. Uh, so it was it was a, a different experience. And we, we, we got to meet with the um, ACLU. Um, and so we learned a lot. Um, we were also able to uh, figure out, you know, wh- what is the opposition? Because there was a lot of support. You know, mm-hmm. we talked to Republicans and Democrats, and we realized that there's a lot of bipartisan support for criminal justice reform and prison reform. And so when we started asking, well, why isn't it getting done? There are specific, you know, individuals that are stopping that progress. And so we were able to at least map out who our influence is because, the last thing we want to do is preach to the choir. That's what everybody does. Is they right. talk to those who who agree with them. Um, but that's not the issue here. If we really want to get changed, it's about um, changing the minds of those um, who make the decisions or who might oppose to you. Um, so it was it was a very um, enlightening three days. We we learned a lot. We felt like we were heard and listened to. Um, had some candid conversations, not only about criminal justice reform, but also about um, community and police engagement and how um, with this new administration and budget cuts and things like that, that that portion of um, the police budget is in jeopardy and one of the things that can get cut to zero dollars. So we want to make sure, you know, we, we were able to kind of formulate a game plan as to what to do next. And did you, you said it's always nice to meet with friendly faces, especially uh, welcoming famous professional athletes, but did you get to meet with that opposition force, the people standing in the way of what you're trying to accomplish? Did you have those meetings? No, not yet. Everybody we met with um, was pretty much in uh, in agreement with us, in alliance with us. Maybe not, you know, like I said, it was, there were Democrats, Republicans, so they're on both sides of the aisle, but everybody we met with was pretty um, in line with what we were asking for. A few differences here and there, but um, we were able to, you know, kind of understand that this is something that's really low-hanging fruit. And so right. we were able to, like I said, from those people get names of, okay, this is where you need to focus some attention to. These are the people that you need to get in the ear of. Um, if you really want to make this happen. And speaking of the police, and I know the the, the mass incarceration that you you guys are are so against the. I saw you did a ride along in Philadelphia uh, with police and kind of learning what they go through to sort of put yourself in the other shoes. Tell me what you know what you got out of that and how important for you was it to do that. It's, it's very important for me to listen like that's in this whole thing you know i it's easy for somebody to blurt out uh you know things from what they experience right the things that they know and you can easily create um tension if we all only speak from what we know but if i never take the time to listen to your perspective your challenges then we never really get anything done and vice versa so if we want to talk about community and police relations, then you have to understand what both sides uh, are struggling with. So we met with the uh, commissioner of police here in Philadelphia, Richard Ross, 
and we I brought myself a couple of teammates and some members of the community, and we were able to talk to him frankly about our concerns um, about um, the police and community relationship, not only across the country but here in Philadelphia, and, and how did that move? And so from that meeting, um, I wanted to take a take a step into their shoes because one of the things that was said is, is that. You know, we it's it's like when you have a white person that is speaking about the black experience uh, or belittling this, the black experience. If you're not black, you cannot understand. And so the same thing. I'm not an officer, so I can't right. tell an officer about their job. So I wanted to be able to at least get some perspective and have and listen to to the voices of those officers. And uh, I learned a lot. You know, there there are a lot of officers out there that are doing a great job that engage with their communities, that uh, have respect and, and love from their communities. Um, but there are also officers that, that don't get it. They don't live in the communities that they're in. Um, there's not that relationship, and there's a disconnect. And, and it makes everyone's job harder. We responded to a, uh, a shooting, and nothing was getting done. You had the police huddled up in the middle of the street talking to themselves, mm-hmm. and you had a whole neighborhood of people all in their yards who did not want to talk to the police. And you can hmm. tell there was no relationship there to actually better the community or make the community safer. That's disheartening, you know, and I hate to be a downer, but speaking of disheartening, we live in a very polarizing time with our administration and all the things we saw during the election cycle that were so negative and even sort of attitudes sparked by Colin Kaepernick and, and people sort of taking different sides. You know, from your perspective, what's bridging that? Uh, and, I, and I think, sorry about that, I think you've already talked about it with seeing the other side and putting yourself in other people's shoes. So I think the only way we bridge things, like, for, for me, I don't mind the polarization, right? And that's what, that's what I think what Colin Kaepernick um, did was great, right? Because he made everybody talk about it. Regardless of if you wanted to or not, you then had to kind of pick a side and figure out where you sat on the situation. Once everybody knows kind of their their own thoughts about it, then there's the engagement part where we need to have conversations and understand one another. Some people might only feel a certain way because that's all they've ever known. And once you, once you get exposed to some other information, some facts, some history, it probably will change your, your perspective. And so uh, I think there's a huge need to educate the masses about our history, about um, those communities and families that our criminal justice system is uh, hurting and has been hurting for a long time. Um, and, and we need to stop having these conversations on social media. <laughs> That's the biggest thing that I think is wrong right now is that we are trying to have real engaged uh, conversation over Twitter and you can't see the humanity in somebody's Twitter handle. You know, you people talk a lot different than they, on Twitter than they would if they stood in front of a person um, and talked, even if they disagreed, you, you, you probably wouldn't have the yelling, the name calling all that stuff because it's a human being and we all that have that, that, that minimum, <laughs> the minimum required uh, dignity to to speak peacefully when when the opportunity arrives. So, 
it's one of the things that it takes work, but it takes people continuing to talk about it. it takes people um, willing to listen and people willing to advocate. Yeah, I mean, a problem with Twitter is that uh, our president, whether he knows it or not, he's figured out a way to use it because by the time people are outraged with whatever he tweets, he's on to the next tweet. (laughs) That's create that creates this really unfortunate cycle. Right. Yeah. Right. If you're somebody who is trying to keep things where it's at, then use Twitter because the minute that you know people you know, galvanize each other and they, they come together to to try to change something and you just introduce a new topic or something that was, you know, more um, sensational and everybody moves on. That was one of the problems of what made me get involved in activism is because I was tired of tweeting hashtags. <laughs> you know, the hashtags right. are only good until another person gets killed or another celebrity does something that's, you know, new and amazing and everybody moves on. Um, so it's, it's it's starting to have those uh, real conversations uh, with real people in in communities, in our um, government, in our law enforcement. These are these are conversations that need to be had. A thought on Kaepernick, where you know, bringing it to football, we're two months into free agency and he's unsigned. I'll tell you my thought, and I like yours. My thought is whether he, I think bling blackballed may be too strong a word. I'd like to know if you believe that, but I do think people do take into account uh, his activism from last year in whether to sign him or not and perhaps go with someone more, I guess, anonymous if uh, if the choice is equal talent-wise in their opinion. So what are your thoughts on his still free agency? Yeah, I mean, I think we don't like the word blackball because it sounds like so negative. Like, but you know, when like just to take your stance on what you just said, if yep. you're saying that all you, you have two equal candidates and we consider that your activism is probably a uh, hindrance to what we want to do, so we'll go with the person who's neutral. Then, in a sense, you're being blackballed because of your stance. If all things are equal and you don't get it, it's because of your activism. So, mm-hmm. but this is not always that case where all things are equal, right? He wants to be a starting quarterback. He's asking for money. He opted out of his contract with the 49ers. Right. Uh, there's, you know, so there's that part of it. There's the draft coming up. So I think there are, there are some variables in here, but I definitely think we would <laughs> we'd be lying to ourselves to say that teams have aren't considering it at all. This is definitely any team any team he signs to will have to evaluate whether they want to have him on their team or not, based off of his political stance. And, and history tells us that's what happens because even with somebody uh like Tim Tebow who's mm-hmm. you know, been in the sports version of Jesus <laughs> his whole <laughs> life uh, nobody really wanted to sign him as a, a backup quarterback because they saw him as a distraction. Now, I don't, you know, I, I'm very careful about using the word distraction as um, to describe what Kaepernick is doing, standing up for social justice. I don't think it's a distraction. Yeah. Nor has anybody on his team ever labeled it a distraction. He had the full support of his coach, full support of his ownership, and full support of his locker room. So, you know, I think the media has portrayed him to be this huge 
you know, like burden to a team to have. Uh, when in all actuality, the people who were in on his team and in that building had no issue with it at all. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up Tebow. I've talked and written about sort of this distraction discrimination, and maybe even attention discrimination, like what I talked about earlier. People would rather, I've been in management, you know, kind of the, the, foot, the faceless, anonymous football guy over the guy that's going to bring attention, especially for a backup player. I'd put Tebow in that category. I'd put Michael Sam in that category. I'd put Ray Rice in that category, all for obviously hugely different reasons. Uh, It's just, you know, the way that NFL is, so many players, for unless the guy is special, they'd rather not deal with it. Right, and that's that's where we are now. The the only guys who can can really speak out and, and be vocal on this are ones who, are playing or who are too valuable to their team to to get basically kicked off or get exiled for. <laughs> if your if your play can justify the attention that you'll get, then we're good. But the minute that those two options don't weigh out, um, you know, that's and that's just the politics of business and sports. And I think uh, the last question on that topic is really what you led me to there is. Were you frustrated, are you frustrated, that those players, we don't even need to name names, the, the superstar special players haven't been more, I don't know what the word is, it's not really active, but outspoken or taken positions beyond just cliches about sports. Uh, does that frustrate you? Um, sometimes. I mean, it, but here's what I always like to remind myself is that when it comes to work like this, um, there, you don't want people who are, who have lukewarm convictions out in front of this, because if you mm-hmm. have superstar athletes, you know, start to say stuff and start to speak out, the attention is going to be on them. Um, and then there's going to be a focus on what actions lead up to that. And if you don't have a heart to do the work, then, you know, I'm, uh, I'd rather you not do anything, you know, if you're not going to do the work. You can do any kind of gesture, stance, speak, or whatever you want, but if you're not really convicted about it, then it's one of those things that's better left to those who are already doing the work. And, and, that's, and that's one of the things because you've had people – these aren't new issues, right? You've had people – who've dedicated their lives to this. Um, and as athletes, we're, we're not full-time activists. So right. if we want to get involved because we think it's cool and it's the thing to do, you, you probably shouldn't because there's some real work uh, to be done here. Um, and so that's, that part about it um, kind of tempers that, that frustration a little bit because I, I recognize that this is not, a, a, it's not for everybody. Right. I think that's well said, and and a previous guest on this podcast was Aaron Rodgers talking about kind of the same thing, and and I think his voice, his comment was, listen, I I know who I am, and I know what I'm educated and and good at speaking at, and I know I speak for a lot of people. I speak for the team. I speak for the state of Wisconsin. I speak for a big audience here, and I want to be sure exactly what I'm saying, so I am careful. He admitted that. Mm Mm-hmm. So here's the thing, too. That doesn't let you off of the hook, though. And I, I agree. That's, that's right. the balance that there is. Once you have a platform to be a player like Aaron Rodgers, to be in the position he is, 
to for all of those reasons he just listed, right? When he speaks, he's representing the the all of these people. It's like so if you know something and then you're educated and your eyes are open to an injustice or something that's going on and you choose not to speak on it, um, then basically all of those people that you just named go un- uneducated about what this problem is. And so there's that mm-hmm. same responsibility um, and opportunity for guys like him to reach crowds that even somebody like myself can't reach. Uh, and so, you know, there's there's a place for everybody if they want to get involved in it. Um, I think a lot of guys shy away from the repercussions and that, and that's always that's a personal decision to to make, but the 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 opportunity for athletes to really make real change to me has been it's been a revelation that I've had over the last few months as I've seen just the amount of um, reach and opportunities that I've been afforded because of my profession and because of what I do, and for guys who have maybe more so than me. It's, it blows my mind how much we could get done if, if, if guys were willing to take that risk. Well said. And a final note on Aaron. I did notice a couple of years ago, or maybe even this year, the, at the end of the anthem, there were some shouts yelled by fans that were pretty xenophobic. Uh, and Aaron commented after the game in his press conference. He was very offended by that, and he was very upset by it. Maybe even to the point of uh, his play, I think they lost the game. So uh, that is one one area where he did step up, and uh, I think he knows the weight of his voice. Yeah, yeah, I think he does. To more mundane topics, a couple of football questions before I let you go. Number one, we got the draft here. What this is kind of a strange question, but I'll ask it anyway. What would you tell yourself, however many years ago, that you know now, as a draftable player? What do you wish you would have known that you know now coming into the NFL however many years ago? You mean about the draft or just in, in, about the NFL? Well, but I guess about what you're going to face uh, the next for the rest of your career. What's going to be different than you, about okay. the NFL yeah. than you think you're going into? Um, for me, I was, I was so um, nervous about you know, coming into a new locker room, uh, coming into um, a, a veteran environment and trying to earn my respect. And I think I was almost a little too intimidated and a little too humble <laughs> at times. And so if I were to just, yeah. uh, if I were to talk to myself now, it would be, hey, trust what's gotten you here. Be yourself and have fun. You know, I was my, my rookie year. I did not enjoy the NFL at all. And when I say that is, I was so focused on uh, every aspect of the game that I never looked up and realized, like, hey, I'm in the NFL. You know, I'm, I'm playing in NFL games. I have mm. teammates. I have, you know, a little bit of the, the life. Um, but I wish, like, when I look back, I wish I would have done more. We won a Super Bowl my rookie year, and I didn't do anything after it. <laughs> like, I was just, you know, I didn't, I didn't take it, advantage of any of the media or events and, like, enjoy the fruits of the labor of being in this stage. Um, and so I, but I've Is that just because you were being deferential to older players? Is that why? Yeah, I did. Well, yeah, I just I, I was always, you know, that that guy where I wanted to earn my spot before I spoke. I wanted to earn 
um, you know, that respect. Um, but a lot of times, or sometimes, you know, that, and I have earned it, and I did earn it, but there were times where I felt like I should have demanded it and commanded it. And mm-hmm. just really on and off the field, just embraced where I was at. You know, that I, I to be in the NFL, am one of the best in, in the world at what I do. And um, I think that's something I really didn't grasp until probably my third, second or third year. And I guess the last question, kind of drilling down to playing for different systems. I just now you know you've been with different coaches. Well, one coaching system I'd like to ask about is Chip Kelly. Just seemed to me the Eagles mm-hmm. sort of uh, went out of the box there. Uh, someone who's not from one of the standard NFL coaching trees, someone who looked like he talked fast, walked fast, thought fast, played fast, and uh, mm-hmm. got into the sports science and the different kinds of training and, and sleep monitoring. Just sort of your thoughts, having been through that and now maybe a more traditional system in Philly, or maybe some of that has held over since he left. Yeah, so one thing I tell people about Chip all the time is that he's one of the most innovative coaches I've been around, and he understands Mm -hmm. um, the importance of training. And so that's the whole, all his sports science stuff that he holds, you know, he kept secrets from the world and, and all of that. Like, it was probably one of the best things from my career. Those are the two healthiest seasons I've had. I played mm-hmm. the most snaps than anybody in the NFL in those two seasons I was with Chip, but felt the best. It was December, and I was still lifting weights hard. I was still taking every rep in practice. Um, and now that we transition into a more traditional program, and some of those things are gone. We've kept some of it, but some of it is gone. You know, I, I know that last year, the end of the year, I, I was wearing down a little bit more, and I played significantly less snaps. Um you know, I was trying to that that whole routine was was so different. So he's onto something there, and even his pace. Like I, I got a chance before I came here. Uh, I was with the Saints. We played the Eagles in the playoff game, and I remember mm-hmm. us preparing for that game as 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 a defense. You know, when the offense is going as fast as they are, you can only run about three plays because you're so worried about getting lined up or miscommunicating in the, in, the, in the secondary, and next thing you know, a big play happens just because you couldn't get lined up fast enough. So often you're only you're keeping your defense really, really simple. And as an, as an offensive coordinator, that is the best thing that you want from or w- want to see is an opponent that can't disguise, that has to get lined up very quickly, and they show you one of three coverages and the one thing that we didn't do enough in Chip's offense, I think, was just build in um, adjustments because he had all the cards in his hand, but, you know, a lot of times the, the offense will go three and out, and it's because the defense had a good look for the play that was called, and oftentimes the quarterback or the coach can't change the play. But you see, you know, if he were able go, to go in and out of tempo, there, there's not many defensive coordinators that will have an answer for that because you'd have to show your hand every time and then they just change the play and whatever's the best play. And so you'd have to always, you know, play that game with Chesterberg. And I think the offense then dictates the pace. But, I mean, it's like any coach, you know, when you come in, you have your way of doing it, the league adjusts to it, and it's and then it becomes a game of how fast can you adapt and adjust and, and move. And I think that's kind of where we, we've seen um, Chip's system kind of start to falter. 
I think what got in the way of Chip here in Philadelphia was more wanting more power, clash of egos. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, I don't, I don't know. Most of that stuff happens upstairs, so that's above my knowledge. Right. But I think uh, from a player standpoint, um, one thing I wish Chip would have done more of was um, be proactive about listening to the team. And, mm-hmm. and not every coach can go to every player and talk to them every day. But what you can do is meet with your leaders, meet with um, – you know, the guys who you think have influence or represent the voice of the locker room so that as players, we know where you are and as a coach, you know where we are. And I felt like that was one of the things that was missing. So when it came, when stuff started to hit the fan and it wasn't working, it was harder for players to buy in because we just didn't have that relationship with the coach. You know, player, he was always, he had an open door policy. So somebody like myself, who's a vocal guy, doesn't mind talking. I could go upstairs and it wouldn't be a problem. But he has to understand that not everybody is in the one in the position that I was in and has that, you know, personality or, uh, you know, bravery to, to just go upstairs and anytime that they wanted to talk to the head coach. Yeah, well, certainly two legacies of Chip Kelly on the Eagles are two gifts from New Orleans that keep on giving, I call them. You and Sproles, you guys just uh, keep on giving those gifts from the Saints. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, you know, it was, it was, that was actually one of the tough things in my career to say goodbye to New Orleans. Uh, in five years there, won the Super Bowl there, met my wife there, had a kid there, had a home, still got a lot of friends in, in the company, but it was, you know, coming to Philly was probably um, one of the, the biggest um, blessings in my career, not, not only being just here in Philly with the fan base and obviously the success I've had personally here on this team, but being closer to my family, only being an hour away, being a Jersey guy, um, and, and then being able to get into the Philly community is something like that's been priceless for me. Well, Malcolm, it's been great having you, talking about so many different topics ranging across the gamut finishing up at the most mundane of all, which is football. <laughs> but you've been a great <laughs> guest. And uh, I really uh, I look forward to seeing you around Philly and, and having you back on the Business of Sports podcast. Thanks for being with me. All right. Thank you for having me. Hope you enjoyed listening to Malcolm Jenkins as much as I did talking to him. What a thoughtful and interesting guy. You can listen to all the Business of Sports podcasts on RossTucker.com, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you hear your podcasts. And follow me on Twitter at Andrew Brand. I'll be back next week with another edition of The Business of Sports with Andrew Brand. Thanks for listening to The Business of Sports with Andrew Brand. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. You can also get additional insider insight by listening to the Ross Tucker Football Podcast, Fantasy Feast, Even Money, and College Draft Podcast, all at RossTucker.com or wherever podcasts are found.